0: A little bit of a late start here, and I have been consciously, whether you realize it or not, I've been consciously trying to slow down when I speak. And I've been trying that for nine years and it hasn't worked. So uh, tonight, I don't know. I'm going to got to get through, and I don't quit. I don't stop before I get done. So let's just pray that we get through it all on time here and get out about a reasonable time. First John chapter 4, if you would turn there please. And this evening we're looking at, at once again at verses 7 through 12 in which the Apostle John is discussing the ultimate test of Christianity. First John is a book about testing our faith, making sure that we are truly in Christ and if we are in Christ, we will believe the right things about him. We will we'll obey his commandments. And most importantly, if we're born of God, we will have the spiritual DNA of our Father. Now, if you'll notice here in 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, we'll finish these verses this evening and be ready for uh, the next part uh, next week. But in verse number 7, John says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. And this was manifested, the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No man has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. These verses can be called a passionate plea of the Apostle John for the proof-positive marker of Christianity. Love is not an optional part of a Christian's life. In fact, the Apostle John says here that this is serious enough that if love does not characterize your life, then you don't know God. Now, he said very clearly in the 8th verse, "...he that loveth not knoweth not God." Now, in the past two messages, we've been in the process of breaking down verses 7 through 12 so that we can very clearly understand why a person cannot be a Christian without love. That has to be an essential part of his makeup. And we learned first of all, as we looked at this a couple of weeks ago, about the essence of God's love. And in verse number 8, John says, God is love. And that means that the nature of God is love. He is a loving God. And love is more than just one of his attributes. Love permeates God so that every act that God does is an act in his love. So we can never look at any activity of God without knowing that somewhere behind everything that God does is love. It's his nature to work in love. And we can start with the very beginning. We go all the way back to the creation. Even when God cast Adam out of the Garden of Eden because of sin... And we might think, well, why couldn't God have been more understanding about that? Why, why didn't God just excuse Adam and say, you know something, Adam? Let's try this thing again, and let's see if you can get it right this time. Well, God couldn't do that because failing to uphold his holiness and his righteousness and his justice would mean not only the destruction of Adam, but it would also mean the destruction of the universe itself. And I don't know if we can understand that fully or how to say that correctly, but if God fails to be consistent with his nature, he fails to be God. And if that is a conceivable thing or if it should happen, the universe would, would spin apart, it would vaporize and be sucked into a big black hole. Maybe Stephen Hawking's hole, I don't know. I don't know if you saw that on Sunday night, but that was something uh, uh, quite incredible to see how he thought the universe was created. But we can't even understand the consequences, really, of what it would be like if God is not God. Because he upholds all things by the word of his power. Uh, Colossians says that by Jesus Christ, all things consist. And so, if God is not God, then there's nothing that can exist. But we need not fear about this or Adam, we need not fear that he was going to be left out in the cold to die in hopelessness and that God was not going to do something about this situation, that that Adam just ends up in hell and that's the end. It couldn't have been that way because God is love. His nature is to love. And what God did was to cast Adam out of the garden to bring him back in a much more glorious way. Now, we haven't realized it yet, but it's coming. Adam lost an earthly paradise, but he gained something that was far better because everything that was lost in the fall was regained in infinitely better capacity in Jesus Christ. So what did God do? Well, in love, he covered Adam's sins. So Adam's failure was not hopelessness for the entire human race because God is love, and God sent Christ to die for sin. Now that was, what we talked about last week, the expression of God's love. How did God show that he loved us? Well, Christ is actually the expression of God's love. According to Romans chapter 5 verse 8, the Apostle Paul said that God demonstrated his love to us by sending Christ into the world when we were in a hopeless state. Now John and Paul are on the same track because John's way of saying Romans chapter 5 verse 8 is found here in the 9th and 10th verses of this text. John says in this was manifested or in this was demonstrated or in the language of the apostle Paul in Romans 5 8 in this God commended his love toward us because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And on the last message, we looked at two very important aspects of God's gift to the world in sending Christ. First of all, it was a unique gift. There was nothing at all like this gift. John said, God sent his only begotten son. And he didn't say Jesus, and he didn't say Christ, and he didn't say Jesus Christ. John said God sent his only begotten Son. And that is an expression of the closeness and the unity of the Godhead. There is a bond that exists between the Father and the Son that does not exist in any other relationship. There is no like relationship to this in all of the physical earth and all the physical universe and all the spiritual world nothing exists like the bond between Jesus Christ and his Father. And it's unique because Jesus is the only one who has the Father's nature. And not that he just has a part of it or they have a part of the same nature, but they are one through and through. Both are the same in essence. They are the same. Well, there's much that we can't understand about God, but we are dumbfounded and awestruck to see how the Bible tells us that God became a man. And we think how unsearchable are God's thoughts that He would become He would come to this earth in human flesh. Now it's no wonder then that John in this epistle fights against the disbelief that Jesus was God incarnate. The Jews couldn't conceive of such a thing. Uh, the Greeks couldn't couldn't conceive that either. And really, it's not even believable to anyone unless. There were eyewitnesses of the majesty of Christ, like Peter and James and John, who were able to say, we saw his glory. And we also know that he was a man. And then secondly, it was an ultimate gift. Last week I gave you the biblical definition of love, and it's the type of love that God demonstrated, and it's the type of love that we strive for as God's people. And that that definition of love was that love is self-sacrificing and seeks the positive good of another at one's own cost. Love is self-sacrificing and seeks the positive good of another at one's own cost. And God giving his own son was the ultimate self-sacrifice. It accomplished the highest good for others at the highest cost to him. So there wasn't any greater good that ever could have been done, no price higher that ever could have been paid in God giving his own son. And when he did that, God was separated from his son. God had to forsake his son when the sins of the world were placed upon him. So God, being pure holiness, even the slightest sin, so to speak, is injurious to God, and that requires infinite punishment. And I think you would see from that statement then that there is no such thing as, a, as a, a sin or a slight sin, a sin that's not serious. Because one ounce of imperfection is enough to fuel the flames of hell for eternity. So when Christ came, became sin, when he became sin for us, there was nothing that God could do but to turn his back on him. His wrath had to be poured out on him. And as the song that we love sings, he took the blame and he bore the wrath. And we stand forgiven at the cross. So God's gift was the ultimate because what Christ purchased through that was an inheritance undefiled. It fades not away. Apostle Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Which according to its abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So that sacrifice of Christ was God giving up his greatest possession, and costing him out of his incalculable wealth for our greatest good. But we also have to remember that what God did, Christ also did. Christ sacrificed himself. It was a self-sacrifice. And so what he did was to pay the ultimate price with his life. And his life is also incalculable in value. It was enough that it could pay for the sins of every sin that was committed. It was valuable enough to buy the redemption of every individual that ever lived. And it's valuable enough to purchase the salvation of every single person that ever lived, if it had been so intended. And so his life was valuable enough that it even perpetuates the lives of others forever. God sent his son to the world, the Bible says, that we might live through him. And it's not just that... Christ died to pay all of our past sins, but he lives to pay for, to cover every transgression of every believer in the present and every sin that we'll ever commit into the future. And then it even goes beyond uh, this, this mortal life because the life of Jesus Christ is the engine of eternal life in the heavens. It sustains unending life. So the Bible tells us that as long as Christ lives, we live. And so do you see how valuable that the gift of Christ was? I mean, if we were to die, the, uh, the very best that we could ever do, if we could, was pay the cost of one man's sin uh, or of one sin of one man. But, but, but Christ has defeated death and hell and sin forever. And then we also consider the cost of what Christ gave up. He gave his life. And the manner in which he did that was beyond amazing. I mean, he gave up a throne in heaven. He was lower, became lower than the angels. He became man, and he was even made lower than a rich man, made lower than an average man. He was made a servant. And then he died the most despicable death that anyone could die with the greatest humiliation that anyone could ever suffer. And even if we say, well, there were thousands of people who died on crosses just like Jesus, and there were, in fact, thousands of people who died on Roman crosses But there was none who was so uh, as undeserving of death as Christ. And none of them suffered as much humility as he did because no one can ever approach the dignity that Christ surrendered in order to go to the cross. So you're starting to get a feel for that. I mean, how much love that it would take for God to do what he did and to do what Christ did. And we've not even reached the most amazing part of this as it touches you and me. And this was the one that I left off last week, the one that was unanswered. This is the most amazing part of it, and that is it was an undeserved gift. It was an undeserved gift. And really, this is the place that rubs the human psyche raw in the worst possible way because God demands this from us that we love people who don't deserve it. Now, that's what makes a Christian because he's the only one who can actually imitate God in that way. And if you can do that, John tells us that's proof that you've been born a God. Now, it doesn't make you a Christian in itself, but what it does, it proves that your nature has been changed, proves that God is in your life, that he's done something different with you, that you've actually been born again. Now, verse number 10 is a stunning verse because it says, herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Three weeks ago in the beginning of this message, I said, God is love is a theological statement. That is a highly theological statement because you can't understand God is love without knowing the theology of it. You just can't simply say God loves you and have that person that you tell it to understand it and you understand it and lets you know what this means, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. When you tell people God loves you, their first thought is, well, of course. Of course he does. Why wouldn't God love me? And our concept is of a benevolent supreme being that loves his little creatures and takes care of them. And God does that all the time. He certainly does. We rarely acknowledge it. I mean, most people never give a second thought to the fact that God gives us food to eat and air to breathe. And so in the sense of common grace, God does give everybody light and air and food. The scripture says that he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And God shows his common grace also by not striking a sinner dead upon the first transgression. See, if we truly understood the magnitude of sin, we would simply marvel at this. That God would even allow us to take the next breath. Why would God even allow that? We should have been gone a long time ago. God can strike the sinner dead at any moment. It's not lacking in its power to do so. The reason that he doesn't do it is because he doesn't have the power. The reason he doesn't do it is because God is forbearing. Because God is patient with us and God is kind to us. But when you tell people that God loves them, the sense of it is, yes, he does love me. And God would never punish me. God's going to allow me to go to heaven because overall, I'm just a pretty good person. So why does God love me? Well, he loves me because I'm lovable, I'm kind, I'm considerate. God should love me. Now, let me show you here a statement in 1 John that, that immediately tells us that something is askew with that kind of thinking. Something is not right here. Because John said, God sent his own son to be the propitiation for our sins. And that word there, propitiation, upsets everything because that means the appeasement of wrath. God sent his son in order to turn away God's wrath. Well, who's God angry with? Not me. I mean, I'm sweet and lovable. God couldn't be angry at me. Of course, God loves me. I mean, how could God possibly be so angry that something has to be done to shelter us, to keep him from incinerating us? Well, something's wrong here, isn't it? Understanding God is love can't happen until you understand who you are And how God sees you. The scripture says that Christ died in order that we might live through him. Well, if we're going to live through him, then it means that we must not be alive, doesn't it? I mean, if you're already living, what's the point here? And do you see what's wrong with these churches that really never want to talk about hell? And do you see a problem of never talking about sin? Do you see what's wrong when you paint over the issue of God's wrath? When you do that, what you've done, you've actually painted Jesus Christ out of the picture. You've ignored Christ because he never would have come here to do what he did if not for the fact that we were ugly, vile, dead, despicable sinners waiting for God to utterly consume us. So the preacher who says, well, we've already got enough negative things to talk about. People are already thinking about enough negative things. So let's don't talk about sin and let's don't talk about death. Let's don't talk about hell. Let's just tell them God loves you, and he has a wonderful plan for your life. And people that do that do one thing. They spit on the cross. They trample under their feet the blood of Jesus Christ, and they think that they can have God's most precious gift with disregard for the costliness of it. So they put no value at all upon Christ's blood, and they say, and on his life, and they say, well, it's deserved. We should have this gift because God is love. So you see what I mean? You can't ignore the doctrine. You can't understand the love of God unless you understand the doctrine of man. Now let's talk for just a moment about the doctrine of man and let's see if we can get a just a a little bit of a grip on the magnitude of John's statement. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. What about the doctrine of man? Well, the Bible teaches us, number one, that we are dead in sins. And so that means that there is no spiritual life in us. We are stone-cold dead in the spiritual world. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, And you hath he quickened, you hath he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sin. I wish we had time... Uh, tonight to dig down deep into that statement because that's probably one of the most misunderstood uh, statements in the Bible. I mean, if preachers and people really understood this one statement that Paul makes in Ephesians 2 verse 1, that would end all of the arguments on election, on predestination, on the atonement, on irresistible grace, on the work of the Holy Spirit and regeneration. Because if you get this right and you understand it, there's never going to be a question in your mind of how you came to Christ and how you were saved you are dead and there's not a clearer statement in all of scripture about the total inability of man than that statement and paul doesn't use the word dead by accident because he pretty much figures that we'll understand what he means when he says dead now the obvious comparison here is the physical death of course it's a comparison to physical death and when a person is physically dead there's no life in him You don't talk to a dead person. You don't cook his dinner for him and take it to him and watch him eat it. You don't ask him to get up so you can wash the linens in his casket. Turn over a little bit, please. You don't ask him to get up and go over and get in the grave, would you please, because you're dead. And Paul says that our spiritual condition is just like that. He says you're dead in trespasses and sin. And so what that means is you cannot get to God. You can't reach up to God. And then Paul goes on in Ephesians chapter 2 to say that faith is the gift of God. So even the fact that you believe is because God wakes you up from that spiritual death and he hands that faith to you. Why do we need to argue that point? I mean, it's clear here in Scripture. But preachers say, no, you make your choice. God votes for you. Satan votes against you. And you make the deciding vote. I heard it said once from this pulpit. Well, if the dead can vote, then... You need to be in Chicago because they count votes of dead people there. But you don't live in Chicago. You live in God's... You live in the spiritual world, I should say, and you are dead in that spiritual world. So you don't have any vote. God is the one who does this. You are born spiritually dead, and you're never going to come to life until God births you. That's what the term born again means. And that's why Jesus talked to Nicodemus about being born again. And he questioned that. How are you going to be born again? Can you give birth to yourself? How many of you gave birth to yourself? I don't know anybody that gives birth to themselves. But that's what you hear in most churches. You birth yourself by accepting Christ. Now, I was listening to Sproul the other day, and I was pleasantly surprised to hear him say something that really has, has that I've been saying for years. And that is, Sproul does not like the term accept Christ. And I never really like the term either because it's not a biblical term. And better said, it's not even a biblical concept. Now, hear me out on this because we hear it all the time, and even I use it sometimes myself when we say, talk about accepting Christ. But think about that for just a moment. Here is the person who says, oh, Jesus, I accept you. You're good enough for me. I'll accept what you say, and I'll accept your gift of eternal life. Here I am. Lay it out on me, baby. I'll take it. Friend, it's not that you accept Christ. It is that Christ accepts you. And if he doesn't accept you, you're not going to be saved. And he only accepts you on the basis of him dying for your sins and turning away the wrath of God because of those sins. What God does is he enables you to receive him. That's the biblical terminology. To receive his love and to receive his forgiveness and to receive his mercy and to receive his grace. Listen to the biblical term. And guess who's the one who gave it to us? It was the Apostle John. He said he was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came into his own, and his own received him not. But to many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Now there John explains how we receive him. He said it's by being born again and he means not by a natural birth he says not we're born of God not by a natural birth and not the will of the flesh that means arising from anything that comes within the natural generation of the inside of man and he says not by man's will also incorrectly known as man's free will but rather that we are born of God and enabled to receive him Jesus said in Matthew ten forty, He that receiveth me. So it's not that we accept Christ, it's that God accepts us. And listen to the other side of this. Having predestinated us according to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of grace. And listen to this. Wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. So we are accepted in. We're brought into life. We were dead, but we live through him. And I could go on for hours talking about that because this has been so jumbled up by poor folks who just want to say, God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. Why? Why does God love you? Well, he only loves you for Christ's sake. He loves you because Christ bought you. And the blood of Christ is the only reason why God loves you. And God loves you because it's his nature. And he loved us, the Bible says, before he even created the world. He loved us. And that's why he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Because he loved us. Now secondly, in this doctrine of man that we really need to understand how this comes to us is that we are depraved in heart. And we've kind of hit on that already. Since we are depraved so deep down to the very core of our being, since we are depraved, we never seek God. Now, the popular theology is that people are seeking God, and God knows that you're after him, and so he responds to your seeking heart. But wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. What does the Bible say about man's heart? Jeremiah 17, 9, The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The scripture says there is none that seeks after God. Why? They won't seek God because God is light and man's deeds are dark. Their hearts are evil. Now I don't know why people read John three sixteen and then stop there. They don't read far enough to get down to verses 19 and 20. And there it says and this is the condemnation that light is come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil for everyone that doeth evil listen hateth the light and neither cometh to the light lest his deeds should be reproved Now who is everyone that does evil That's pretty much everybody isn't it There's none that hasn't sinned no not one Everybody does evil People do not seek God, and the reason they don't is because God is holy and God dwells in the light, God lives in the light, and we are in darkness and we won't come to him because we do not want those evil deeds exposed. And that's why a Christian who lives like a Christian in the world, who lives the way he should, is the light shining of Jesus Christ. He said, you are the light of the world, and sinners never like the light. Their hearts are depraved. There's only one way to change that. And that's for God to reach down and to yank you out of the darkness because you're not going to come to the light. Now, do you remember what what happened to Paul on the road to Damascus? There was a light that shone around him that was above the brightness of the sun. And that light was the glory of Jesus Christ. And it exposed the evil that was in Paul's heart. Paul did not say, Lord, I've been looking for you. I've been looking for you. No, Jesus found him. And you know what Jesus said to him? You have been persecuting me. You've been persecuting me. Now, do you realize what an astounding display of God's love that was? Jesus said to the apostle Paul, you have been persecuting me. And then right then, just like that, God changed that wicked, vile heart and made him a child of God. And do you know what that shows us? It shows us that we are in terrible hostility towards God. We do not seek God. And the reason that we don't is because we don't want to be in the camp of the enemy. God is our enemy. And that's because he's pure holiness and we're purely sinful. Now, what God should have done was to blow Paul off the the horse and then grind him up in little pieces and and just grind him down to the dust of the earth. But you know why God didn't do that? Because his nature is to be forbearing, his nature is to be compassionate, his nature is love. And listen, he loved Paul when there was no reason to love him. He's persecuting Christ, he's seeking Christians to kill them, he's going out of his way to find them and put them to death. And there's no reason why God should do anything at all with Paul or Saul as he was then, except for the fact that God intended to save him and even when Paul hated God, in the, or hated Jesus Christ in the worst way possible. Now, there's not a person in the room tonight who deserved God's love. God does not love us because we loved him. And not only didn't we love him, we couldn't love him. We don't love him and we can't love him. Because it's simply this, it's not in the nature of man to love God. It's not a part of its nature any more than it is the nature of a, of a sheep to eat meat and a lion to eat grass. It's not their nature to do it, and it's not in man's nature to love God. So I want to bring this all back again here. Why that we have to be born again? That's why we have to be born again. We can't love Him until we're born again, and we can't receive Him until we're born again. And when we're born again, then we love others just like God loves us. Now that's what John says in verse 11. He says, "This is what should happen, beloved. That God so loved us, we ought also to love one another." So that's proof of the new nature. You can't get to that statement, and you can't understand that statement unless you know who you are and where you came from. If God did so much for you when you were so far away from him, the reasoning here is why can't you then love others? And the whole point that John is trying to get across here is that you will. You will love others if you really are a child of God. Now, what I do, folks, is is I lose patience really, really fast with preachers on television and radio that talk about God's love and God's benevolence and God's desire that you're going to be rich beyond your wildest dreams. I lose patience with that because every single one of them cuts, up, cuts out the blood of the Savior. They cut it out of the, of the gospel. They wad up God's gift and they treat, treat it like that's just a trivial piece of nothing. Christ died a horrible, agonizing death. He was humiliated beyond all comprehension for despicable, ugly, arrogant rodents. And I was right there among them. I was right there among them. So it's a unique gift. It's an ultimate gift. It is a holy, undeserved gift. And God is love. His nature is love. Now, one last thought here, and we'll be through. John says in verse 12, No man hath seen God at any time, If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. Number three is the example of God's love. How many times have you read this verse? Why does John say, no man has seen God at any time? Why would he include a statement like that in this whole discussion about love? It seems to be out of place, doesn't it? That's a subject for someplace else. No man has seen God at any time. And it's true, no one's ever seen the Father, which means that no one's ever seen God in the fullness of his glory. We know that's true by reading other scriptures. Moses could not see the glory of God, and so God hid him in the cleft of the rock while his glory passed by. There are theophanies in the Old Testament, but those are visible manifestations of God in human form. Some of those are pre-manifestations of Christ. John said in, uh, or John four twenty four rather says that God is a spirit, and we cannot see a spirit with human eyes. Now, if if we could see spirits, we would see angels in the room tonight, and we would probably see demons too, and some of them would be standing over next to the light switches trying to turn out the lights again. If we could see the demons, they that's what they would be doing. No one has seen God. Now John said almost exactly the same thing in John 1:18. He said no man had seen God at any time. The only begotten son which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Now that thought, we can't see God and God is declared in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, that is the key to what John says in verse 12 of the text. And the key is here, how are we going to know that God is real? well God revealed himself in Jesus Christ but now Christ has gone back to the Father the horrible rift that existed because of sin when Christ had was made sin for us that's been mended Christ arose from the grave and now he's ascended back to the Father so how then is God declared in the present age how can we know God now how can we see God in a personal way well here's the answer God lives in us we're the living examples, we're living testimonies of God's love. When we love other people, we show God's love. And so when you have a love that is so uncommon that it's like anyone else around you, if you can love your enemies, if you can love those who do not deserve to be loved, that's when the Bible says God is declared. God's manifested. So our love for others is not what makes us Christians, but it what proves that we are, because God dwells in us, the fullness. Of God's love is his nature. The fullness of his love is the gift that he gave in Christ uh, for our sins. And John says God loves, God's love is perfected. It comes to completion in the final objects of his love. And that's us, those that have trusted him. So if we fail to love others, we ruin the picture of what God did for the world. We ruin the picture of why why God created the world and then God sent Christ to redeem the world. If the objects of God's love do not declare him, then how can anyone today actually know what God did? Creation's not enough to show us a personal relationship with God. If it were, then just about everybody would be saved. Creation is not enough to show us there's a personal God who loves us. And the common grace of God is not enough to prove that God loves us. Most people don't even understand common grace. And I told you this a moment ago, most people don't even think about it at all. We have light, we have air, we have food, all that God gives. We don't even think about common grace. So how are people going to know that they can, they can have a personal relationship with the God who is the creator? Well, the way that they know is that God is declared through his people. God is declared by those who have been regenerated, by being born again, those that have a new nature. They show that they belong to Christ. And so it's very simple what he's trying to get across here. If there is no love in you, you cannot know God. You can't. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. Now, I hope you get it, that what John is trying to say, this is the ultimate test of our Christianity. Jesus said, by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. So you're the example. You're the living proof that God is real, that God can have a personal relationship with people. You are the living proof. And the only question left is, you are, aren't you? You are that living proof, aren't you? I hope you are, because if you're not, then you don't know God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time to look at your word tonight and how serious a, a matter that John has brought to our attention here. And Lord, we need to judge our Christianity and look into our own hearts and see if we really do know you by the love that we have for each other. Lord, I pray that there, if there's people here that have problems with other members of the church and don't treat other people right and have all these things that are going on, that they would repent of that sin and understand that if they don't show the love of Christ, if they can't show the love of Christ to others, if they refuse to do that, then you're not really in them. This is the proof that we really do know you. Speak to our hearts, Lord. Help us to understand this clearly. You came in the world to die for our sins because you loved us and help us to show that love to others in Jesus name we pray amen let's stand.